Please have a seat if you're not already. Uh, my name is Michael Miller, and uh, the gospel wrecks me every time. I am so grateful. Aaron, thank you for the songs that you chose. Um, if you take nothing else away today, there's a cleaning that only Christ can perform, and it results in his church serving one another. And I'm telling you, my name's Michael Miller, I'm a pastor here, and I have enough TNT in my heart, in my mouth, in my mind to blow up any relationship. And the only reason that I get to stand here and talk about how great Jesus is, is that I have a track record of failing and being picked up by a Savior of whom I'm extremely unworthy. So, we're going to turn to today's passage uh, where it says it was just before the Super Bowl and uh, just like today, um, the Passover festival, the Passover festival, that was starting. Jesus and the disciples are loading up on the snack foods. They're staking out their spots in front of their big screen television. They were eating their evening meal, okay? It's, it's a big deal. As the scene opens, a tone change happens in the book of John. Everything has been moving toward what's happening now. Even what happened last week is prep for what starts now, and the pace just accelerates, as Tim has been saying. The key character in this scene, as really most scenes in John, is Jesus. And John is at pains to paint a picture of Jesus that features three characteristics that I want to start off by talking about, that this is a king who knows, this is a king who loves, and this is a king who serves. So if the king knows, what does he know? First thing he knows is the time. He knows what time it is. Uh, don't, don't be literal and say, oh, he looked at his Apple Watch while in front of the Super Bowl on the big screen TV. No, he's talking about a momentous event, a coming event, a critical event, the event for which he's here. Back in John 2, when his mother told him they needed more wine at a wedding, he was already foreseeing this event. And he said to, to his mother, my hour has not yet come, as though that answered her uh, request or demand for wine. He knew from the beginning of his ministry that this hour, this moment, this occasion was coming, and here he is entering into it. In John 12, he said, the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, you may do this better than I do, but I tend not to know. And I was thinking, uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. About 21 years ago, I had a custom engagement ring made. And shortly after that, um, Karen, whom I was dating, uh, she didn't say it directly, but she implied that she had some reservations about getting married. And so I had thought the time had come, thus engagement ring. And now I thought, oh, well, maybe the time has not come. Now what? So we're having dinner on Valentine's Day, 1999. Do I have the date right? Excellent. Full points. And uh, 
she just happens to say before dinner that God has resolved her issues about being married. And I said, well, in that case, <laughs> because the time had come, right? By God's grace, Karen and I are still living in that hour, uh, and it gets better and better. The king knows the time. He saw it coming, and he knows it is upon him. He also knows the place. Not some room with his disciples. What kind of place are we talking about? His real place. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus wasn't created. Jesus is God. He has always been there. He's always been in the company of the Father. His place is with God, though he walked with us for a short, beautiful, brutal time. John 13, 3 tells us that he had come from God and was returning, and the underlying language implies to be with God. Later in John 16, 28, John's going to say even more plainly, he quotes Jesus, I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. This king knows his place. Now, God is spirit, so we are not saying that Jesus has in mind something that MTV Cribs can show you, okay? The pictures and revelation of what heaven is like are not meant to be architectural specs. They are a vision of the glory and majesty of the presence of God that is overwhelming to John. He's disoriented, he's confused, he's overwhelmed as he's there. When I say his place is with the Father, Jesus means that he and the Father are one. He means that Jesus is a bigger king than any of his disciples comprehend at this point. He means that Jesus' life on earth is a rescue mission for people like you and like me who have no standing to demand help from God. All right, and then the king knows his people. One of the ways this becomes clear for me is in the book of Revelation. Um, and we're not going to read all this, uh, but John has a message that he delivers from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor at the time. There are seven churches, and Jesus has a message for each church, and the critical part of each message is, I know. So, Revelation 2.2, I know your deeds. Revelation 2.9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Revelation 2.13, I know where you live. That sounds a little menacing, doesn't it? Actually, where they live is menacing. Anyway, 2.19, I know your deeds. 3.1, I know your deeds. 3.8, I know your deeds. 3.15, I know your deeds. Does Jesus know what's going on with his churches? Yeah every last thing, and he knows their motives, he knows where they're on and where they're off, he knows what they have to commend them, if anything, and he knows what they have against them, if anything. So, Jesus precisely portrays the character and action of these seven churches, and he knows us, including the nature of us together, not just his body, the church, throughout space and time, throughout geography, throughout language, but also each gathering. He knows what Church of the Valley is like. 
He knows where we're effective and ineffective. We, he knows where our motives are right and where they are not. He knows when we're pursuing something other than him, even. He knows where we think we're pursuing truth but have been deceived. And that's why I'm grateful that this king also loves. He doesn't just know these things, but he loves. John describes Jesus' love, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, language nerd alert. The expression to the end, that's one of the, the meanings. If you look at a, a lexicon of uh, Greek from this era, it says this particular usage combines the meanings of until some ending time with to the uttermost, or I, I would probably say fully. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them with everything. He laid it all out. Tim, stand up for a second, if you would. Anybody see Kittle play? Does he lay it all out? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Tim. That's the only visual aid. Last week, Tim used a visual aid, and I'm still reeling from disorientation. All right. Jesus loved his own completely and for as long as he is able. Finally, the king serves. What does the king do with this love? So he's a king, but out of it he serves. Verses 2 through 5 describe the scene. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put things under his power, all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Now, Pastor Tim recently preached a sermon called Behaving Like We Believed, and he talked about the story from John 12 of Mary pouring uh, expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. And he was fairly graphic in how dirty feet were in the era. So if you're really interested in that, go back and watch that on, on, uh, online. Tim pointed out rightly that Mary is in a posture of worship. Jesus, in this situation, is doing something similar. He's using a towel and not his hair. He is not worshiping his disciples. But his posture of service looks incredibly similar, doesn't it? These disciples enjoy a cleaning they didn't deserve. So Mary gave Jesus the worship and adoration that he deserved, and Jesus gives the disciples service and cleaning that they don't deserve. But it's one that they need more than anything. I was trying to think of analogies for how crazy this act of service is because we don't, we don't have that many off-limits tasks uh, in, in current society. So I decided that rather than running further down that rat hole, I was going to give you a counterexample. Are you ready for this? It's going to involve the Old Testament. So inhale, exhale. All right. We're going to go to Genesis 18. Now Abraham... The great man of faith is being visited by God. God appears in human form with a, a couple of compatriots, 
interesting, travels in three. Uh, they appear in human form, and it doesn't appear at first that Abraham understands that he's dealing with a divine visit. But nonetheless, he scurries around and takes care of hospitality. So let me read verses 1 through 5 in Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre when he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. And then Abraham, he doesn't just get a bite to eat, he gets a feast going. Dude is hospitality prime. He has it going on. But the one thing he doesn't do, he doesn't offer even to wash their feet. He says, I'll bring water and you can wash your own feet. Because Abraham has some self-respect. He has some dignity. You don't wash other people's feet. You don't wash other people's feet. He makes it possible for the guests to wash their own feet. Super. In our passage, King Jesus Messiah washes the feet of Abraham's descendants. Abraham is visited by God and doesn't wash God's feet. God visits Abraham's descendants and washes their feet. <sighs> Having a gospel moment here. Okay. Instead of the weaker serving the greater, which is the expectation not just of the disciples and people in that era, but people today, it's the state of humanity. That's what the weaker for, for the, the stronger to exploit, right? The greatest serves the weak. You want to think about how weak they are? Judas is at this meal. It doesn't say Jesus skipped Judas. Jesus, who already knows who Jesus is, who Judas is, deep into his corrupt heart, washes Judas's feet. Does Jesus serve his disciples then because of their accomplishments or their potential? Of course not. He knows who they are. He un understands who they are. And nonetheless, he loves them and he serves them. And I want to, Jesus is not an undercover boss. Have you seen the show? You know the basic idea, an executive from a company uh, gets a sometimes kind of lame uh, costume, you know, and uh, appears in a low-end low job, like the bottom of the org chart uh, for their company and serve alongside the people who are in the, the kind of jobs that they never really think about. And oftentimes, they're not very good at it. Oftentimes, they are absolutely surprised. And usually, the show has a melodramatic conclusion where they reveal who they are to the people that they met, and then they shower the ones who were good employees with gifts, and the other ones get retraining, which always sounds a little scary as well. And if you see a parallel here, I, I, gotta, I gotta just jump in and knock that down. Jesus is not the disconnected executive 
who doesn't know what's going on at the bottom of his org chart. He is down there on the floor washing feet. He knows where you've been and where I've been. Jesus is not moved by shock and guilt at the struggles of little people or big people. He is moved to compassion because he loves people, and he sees that we are slaves to sin and death and the despair that all that breeds. And Jesus doesn't lavish gifts on people who deserve it. He serves them all regardless of their merit. He's the king who's voluntarily taking on the worst jobs. He's the king who volunteers to work swing shift. Anybody work swing shift? No? Uh, I, see, I see nodding. Did you love it? Anyone who loved working swing shift, stick a hand in the air? No. Uh, okay. My, Mike's kind of eh on it. Kings don't work swing shift. Now, Judas has a problem because he doesn't want to work swing shift either. Uh, he's obviously not one of Jesus' own. And at this point, he's past the point of no return. We have to think about who are Jesus' own. So Judas being at this Super Bowl party, Passover dinner highlights the first idea this passage is emphasizing, which is Jesus' own are faithful. What is Judas? He's unfaithful. What are Jesus' own? Faithful. All the way back to the beginning of this gospel in John 1, 11, and 12, the disciple Jesus loved describes a response of those who were supposed to be his own and the response of those who did respond. Uh, verses 11 and 12, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believed, and believe becomes one of the big themes of John's gospel. People keep hearing or seeing and believing in Jesus, and then some of them stop believing. Some of them wander away. But John is saying, his own are faithful. Believing in his name, it says, that's about, it's not about Jesus' magical name. That's about the authority of the king. He speaks with the authority of the king. There is no higher authority than that which Jesus carries. It's about understanding that he is our king, and he has authority not only of his person, his perfect person, but also his position, which is above anything we can comprehend, really. And then more recently, if we can call it that, uh, we saw in John 10... Uh, Jesus' own, listen to him and do what he says. Verse 3 says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And yet, in our passage today, one of the disciples is suited up for the game, and he's seeking to undermine his coach. He wants the other team to win the game. It says, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas has already come up with the idea to steal the other team's signs. Oh, I'm sorry, too soon? 
We're not in Houston. It should be okay. Uh, If you consider yourself one of Jesus' own, do you love your king even when he doesn't do what you want him to? We all, to some extent, pastors included, have mixed motives. We want Jesus and our own way. But the way of faithfulness as one of Jesus' own is to look to the Savior bending over our filthy feet and say, I want what you want. I want you to be glorified. I want to expend my life for you who gave me your life. The way of faithfulness is to sing as we did earlier. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's where my value comes from. We want the gospel to take deeper and deeper root in our hearts and our minds. We want it to flow into every nook and cranny so that there's nothing that escapes it. Everything in our lives should be flooded by Jesus' power and grace, and we want to become more and more controlled by the agenda of the king rather than our own. Not even the parts of our agenda that we think are his and not really our own. The next thing about Jesus' own is that they deepen their understanding of their king. In this passage, Peter demonstrates this idea. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Jesus knows Peter doesn't get it. But John, writing this gospel, doesn't let Peter off the hook. He doesn't let us off the hook either. Let's read verse 8. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter tells us what the story of Abraham and his visitors tell a person with any dignity. An important person, let alone a king, is not supposed to wash my feet. It's wrong. And in the literal shallowness of his understanding... He won't accept Jesus' washing. This is pride, people. This is a false show of humility to signal, I get it. I get who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if nobody else is going to treat you with the respect that you deserve, I am. Look at me. But it gets worse than that because Jesus explains himself, and Peter doubles down. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Peter is still operating in this literal shallowness. He's just changed the territory. If a little washing is good, then wash everything. That's better. Before, he was taking pride and demonstrating false humility, and now he's demonstrating a misunderstanding of what Jesus is about. Maybe it's easier if I say this. At first, Peter complains that Jesus is doing too much. And now, Peter claims that Jesus isn't doing enough. When we boil it down like that, doesn't it sound like Peter's got criticisms of his king that make it less obvious that Peter is on the right track? 
Hasn't Peter acted out of some other motive than either enjoying or protecting his king's authority and power? Whenever we think Jesus is, you know, too mild or too severe, I think we lose sight of the fact that everything Jesus does, every single thing is just right. So at this dinner, Peter's understanding is deficient. But the good news is that time repairs that. Time, in the company of his Savior, repairs that. Time, powered by the Spirit, understanding the Scriptures that Jesus has taught him, allows him to develop and learn. And Jesus says this in verse 7, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Verse 12, let's skip there. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus says, you do not know now. He says, later you will understand. He asks, do you understand? And no, they don't understand. Whatever glimpse they've got of who Jesus is, whatever he was doing, whoever they think they are right now, it's not going to become real understanding overnight. It's going to take time, his death, his resurrection, his teaching, his sending the Spirit. But church, after those things, his guys did come to understand. His own demonstrated themselves as his own. They were faithful. They loved like he loved. Peter came to see himself in a line of people who served others. In 1 Peter, uh, gosh, I've picked too long. Uh, it was revealed to them, verse 12 says, that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that now have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into those things. Peter says, I am in a line of people who didn't fully understand we were speaking something that was true. The prophets of the Old Testament spoke it, but they didn't understand it fully. Angels in heaven don't understand it fully. We only know what Jesus has explained so far, but we know what Jesus has explained so far, and I am part of that. I have given up my agenda here, and it's all about his, and I can accept that I don't see the whole thing. Peter, at his best moments, isn't thinking about himself. He's thinking about his Savior and his people. And later, he'll say that Jesus loved his own and told his own to love his own. Verse 22, now that you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. He's no longer operating in pride and lack of understanding. He's saying what his master said. He's applying it to the churches who are looking to him after the death of Paul for some kind of guidance, some kind of leadership, some kind of indication that the plan of Christ continues even after Paul has been killed. And this disciple that Jesus loved, 
he unfolds the story, guess what? His understanding develops as well. In 1 John 5, John says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Peter speaks of being purified by the truth of God. John speaks of knowing the true one, Jesus, Messiah. And these are two of the ones who depended on his cleansing. Anything they did in ministry after Jesus goes is only possible because Jesus' own depend on him. There's no fruit on a branch, Jesus says later in John's gospel, unless that branch is connected to the vine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that one must be in Christ to see God's glory and to be transformed into Christ's image by gazing upon him. But their minds were made dull, he says, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. People who loved the Hebrew Scriptures but didn't, couldn't get it, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away, even to this day. When Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you feel like you're demonstrating ever-increasing glory? I'd say my spotty record indicates... Um, I was thinking about how I like to contemplate Karen's beauty, you know, just like to stare at her, just drink it in. And she loves this kind of attention. It's just... <laughs> so, so, because we have a relationship and we have a specific kind of relationship, um, even though it's a little creepy when I do it, you know, up here at the front of a church, ordinarily not creepy. But in other circumstances, without that relationship, gazing at her beauty isn't going to do anything to deepen our relationship. Do you hear what I'm saying? If she's just some lady at a coffee shop and I'm staring at her, I'm a creeper, okay? Don't do that. Likewise, I can stare at God, filled with my own thoughts and seeing what I want, and get wrong ideas. I've got to be in relationship with him and gazing at his son, and that's how transformation happens in me. With ever-increasing glory, our swing shift king didn't just come to be hanging out with lowly laborers. Fellowship with him raises us up to be more like him transformation happens to make us more like him. So it's not just the law that transforms us and obedience to the law, it's gazing on Jesus, and that's why we're never done with the gospel. There's too much. So let me just say... All of this is why we so much need Jesus' washing. 
because what comes out of my mouth can be damaging to people that Jesus cares about. Because what goes on in my head can be an impediment to understanding who God is. Because what I walk in understanding from the culture that I grew up in doesn't lead me to an understanding of God in any kind of fullness. People argue about the significance of the washing that Jesus did, and I think it's because we want to make this illustration kind of serve bigger purposes than it really does. Here's what Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Where have we heard that before? Now you know my will, go do it. Huh. It's almost like a theme at Church of the Valley. Why foot washing? Because no king would consider doing this. This isn't on the, the multiple choice for how to, how to interact with your subjects. But Jesus isn't like any other king. He's not any standard person. His idea of self-respect is being obedient to the Father, and the way that he's modeling it is so crazy in the eyes of his disciples that they can understand there's something weird going on here beyond what they can comprehend. And that was the washing, the reason for the washing of the feet, because it was shocking. It was outrageous. It shocked Peter into disagreement with his master. It did nothing to change Judas's mind, Judas is maybe on the fence. John says, nah, but this, this little interaction didn't change anything. And when Peter objects, Jesus changes the illustration slightly. It's like when Jesus first speaks of himself as a shepherd, and then later in the same passage, he's the gate. Shepherds don't make good both, at least long term. You've you got to pick one or the other. If you're going to lead them out, you can't stay back being the gate because the metaphor is shifting. He's taking one illustration, he's doing multiple takes on it. Peter says, I for one will not degrade you by letting you clean my filthy feet. And Jesus says, then you're a rebel. When Peter says, well then clean everything, Jesus replies, there's one filthy part of you that needs cleaning, and that is what I will clean. What's that part? I think the psalmist says it, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Say what? Yes, he did. He commanded it. But my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Say what? The law required it. Yeah, the psalmist is saying he wants something more than that. So much more that the law pales in comparison. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is written within my heart. And that's the one thing that needs to be changed about Peter and every one of us is that our heart answers to a different king by default. His law has to be written on our hearts. His obedience, his love his service has to be written in our hearts or it's not going to happen. Only gazing at our king 
can allow us to do that. And we have to grow in his likeness together. I think for time's sake, I'd like to invite the, the worship team up. And I'm going to pass the offering bags in a minute, and I want you to understand, if you didn't come prepared to give, if you're a guest, just pass the bag to the next person. If you did come prepared to give, this is your opportunity. There will be a bag. There's a box in the, the back of the lobby. And I've had a weird week, weird relationally, Weird things in the news. Uh, Kobe Bryant and his daughter dying has been big news. And the thing that shook me was not so much the praising beyond what I understood. It was the immediate, day one, the man has just died, and we're talking about his worst characteristics. And this is a guy who inspired a ton of people and was an amazing player. And on the very day that he and his daughter go down in a helicopter crash, what are we looking at? We're looking at his flaws. And that is why we need a Savior who's willing to clean the parts of us that can't be cleaned in any other way. Because there's always something where we're stuck. So if you're frustrated or scared because you've worked and worked to get yourself clean and you still are finding that you're falling short of your own standard, or if you think you're clean because you're a good person, if you think God doesn't have an interest in you as a person, in your troubles and in your triumphs, in Jesus, our teacher and our master and our king, there's no condemnation if he cleans you. He cleans you so that you're acceptable to God, not just to you. And he personally cleans the grubbiest, least acceptable parts of you. If you're a person on the fringes of the church, if you're involved in community group or one-on-one -on -one discipleship, or if you're a leader in the church or in a parachurch organization, people look up to you, if you're a missionary or a pastor or the head of a gospel-focused organization, you're still nothing if Jesus doesn't clean you. Everything you do that has eternal value will come from that cleaning and that care. So any pride I have or you have in our roles or position, in our depth or expression of worship, in our theory or our practice of ministry, all of that is missing the point. These are meant for service in the body of Christ, not for our being confident in. Because anything we do that isn't out of a desire to serve this king and this master the way he served us, there's nothing to it.